now you come to hear a New Year's message of what God might be saying to us personally and individually. And uh, for today's message, I'd like you to turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 to 11 in a moment. And I'm going to be staying with this passage every Sunday in the month of January. And my theme for the month is authentic faith. And today we're looking at apostolic assurance. But you'll find right in the heart of it a blessing and a promise that you can take away with you today for 2015. So let's read 2 Peter 1, verses 1 through 11. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now we're going to underline that because that is the blessing of God for our lives this year. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. As his divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence... Add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, with these very precious gems of scriptural revelation, we pray that you would add the moving of your Holy Spirit that your word might be clear to our hearts today. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, Second Peter was written by the Apostle Peter 
towards the end of his life, and uh, therefore his mind is focused perhaps a little bit on the message that he's going to leave behind in that very early church. He was a leading apostle, great apostle to the Jews, and, and had a very significant part to play in the leadership of the early church and the direction that it took. And uh, by now, I'm sure, he's wanting to say, what can I say that's going to stay with the people? Particularly as Peter was already aware that certain things were happening in the society and, and it wasn't always going to be very easy. In fact, there were signs that persecution was going to grow and uh, challenges were going to increase. And he says, I, want to, I just want to leave something behind by way of a legacy that will encourage you, that will strengthen you, and give you confidence. Now, in many ways, while we're not in exactly the same situation, I believe that God wants us to draw fresh strength and encouragement and hope and confidence for authentic faith in the generation which we live. In the revival times, my opening word there, deeper with God, talks about some of the things that are going to be happening in Britain. Now, I do have a considerable body of uh, revelation and prophetic insight into this. I've been carrying it for quite a long time, and yet the Holy Spirit doesn't give me permission to go into a great deal of detail. But right now, let me just put it this way. The 2020s are going to be very significant in the spiritual life of our nation. In the 2020s, we're going to see enormous changes, political changes, religious changes, spiritual changes. Some of these changes will be as a direct result or coming out of constitutional changes when one monarch hands over to another monarch, and it's going to bring perhaps some of the most difficult times that we will face. And uh, while this may sound a little bit alarming, when the Holy Spirit sounds an alarm, when he uh, prepares us in advance for some of the things that are coming, he always does it for a reason. He does it that we would be prepared and also to lay hold of his promises because when tough times come, God says, I'm going to show my glory. He's going to give us everything that we need, not only to survive, but to thrive and to fulfill a very significant role. Let me just say one more thing. As we see increasing laws which are not just uh, against the Bible, anti-Christian, but actually which lead to greater disintegration of our society, there are going to be more and more people who are going to be knocked to the edges of society, bruised and broken, and, and the church of Jesus Christ is going to have to stand up and be ready to repair some damage and to point increasingly to the only hope that there is for our nation and our society, and that is to thrive in faith in Christ, to thrive on Christian values. And therefore we need to be prepared as never before, both to articulate our faith based in the purity of New Testament revelation and to embody that faith in the way that we live and to be ready for the times ahead. And we're going to be looking at that more and more as the years progress.
But Peter was saying, I want to leave a legacy behind by which you can test your own authenticity as believers and where you can reject all forms of false Christianity and false spirituality. And I think this, again, is very relevant because our society is increasingly intolerant and rightly so of fake Christianity. So long as they seem to be saying, shut up and show me. And that's the title which I've borrowed from Bruce's new book, which is coming out very soon, on James. When he hit on the title, James was saying, stop talking about this. Do it. Shut up and show me. And I think they're saying that there was some cynical comment over, over Christmas when uh, people were tweeting with one another and there were various ways in which it was happening on social media. And Christians were saying, put Christ back in Christmas. And the world was saying, put Christ back in Christians. There's a good start. And they're longing for it to be true, even though they sound hostile. They're, they're, they're just testing and they're just probing to see if it is genuine. And if we can show them authentic faith in the 21st century at this time, we're going to see some good things happening. But more than the world is longing for it, we are longing for it. Never before have I wanted to be and demonstrate what it means authentically to believe in Jesus Christ. It's always on the agenda. But somehow there is a new hunger within me, and I know a new hunger within many of you as well. We are longing to live as authentic Christians. And we're tired of all the fake spirituality, all the hype that is going on, and all the false emphases. We want to get back to the Jesus of the Bible and the discipleship of the New Testament. We're longing to be authentic Christians and to grow in this authenticity because there's something in in us. It's the gold of his presence. As we read, I'll deal with it next week, we have been made partakers of the divine nature. And there is a nature in us, a renewed nature. If you're born again, you are a new creation. Christ is living within you. And you have a, have a nature in you that longs for God, that hungers and thirsts for God. And longing to see the passion for Jesus Christ become so strong that it pushes out all other passions. We long to be like him. We long to be authentic. But how can we do this if we lack confidence in who we are in Christ and what he's doing in us? And I believe Peter addresses this very question. Peter shows us that we can have confidence that our faith is real, resting on solid foundations. And this is one of the problems of our modern society When it comes to matters of faith, it's a matter of opinion. It's a matter of personal belief. Nobody expects that any of these things are real. It's just about whatever you choose to believe. And if it helps you, well, that's good for you. But our faith is not nebulous. Our faith isn't like a kind of cloud. It's not a kind of imagination. Our faith rests on something solid. Ephesians 2 verse 20 talks about this solid foundation. It says, having been built on the foundation. Now, you don't build on a foundation unless you believe it's secure. Having been built on the foundation, the secure foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Jesus is the foundation. 
He is the rock. He is the foundation that no one can lay other than the foundation that God has laid. And the foundation is Christ himself. Who he is, what he's come to do, his work in our lives. Our foundation is Christ. Hook on to Jesus and you hook on to something solid. But here it's described as a foundation that is expressed through a twofold ministry. The ministry of apostles and prophets. Now these are labels, very, very simple. Apostolic foundation and prophetic foundation. What it means in this context is, is that the message we have received is a real eyewitness account. The apostles were there. They walked with Jesus. They ate with Jesus. They saw his miracles. They heard his teachings and circulated that teaching after he was gone. And then after a while, some of it was written down here and there. And then the gospel writers, resting on apostolic authority, collected that. And we have the gospels. All of these gospels rest on apostolic eyewitness facts. They were there. They saw it. They heard it. And uh, the prophetic aspect of this it's not just that it's talking about facts like a real research from, from what we might call investigative reporters who would say, what actually happened? How many were there? And they interviewed and witnessed all these eyewitnesses and brought it together. But it was not just apostolic witness, but prophetic revelation. We put it to you this way, if you do some research and you agree that the New Testament rests on historical foundations and go outside of the New Testament to contemporary record and historical accounts, you will learn a great deal about Jesus. From the New Testament, of course, but outside the New Testament, you will know that Jesus was born. You will know that he was crucified. You will know that he performed miracles. And you will know that there are reports of him being raised from the dead. You will know that many people believed that he was Messiah. And all of these are facts. It wasn't done in a corner. It was done openly. However, it takes more than the facts themselves to have an understanding of the faith. And these early apostles received also prophetic revelation to explain the facts and interpret the facts. So, for example, if we can have the fact that Jesus died on the cross. And we can see that as an historical record. But it takes prophetic understanding as to know why he died on the cross. And what that response is that the cross calls us to make to understand that when Jesus died as a sinless person on the cross he wasn't dying for his own sins but he was dying for the sins of the world that's prophetic revelation to understand who he is and what he means in your life that he, he's not just some Jewish messiah or pretender he is the Lord of all demonstrated in the resurrection the significance of these things are recorded and so as Peter says in the same chapter we've just been reading, verse 16, and this, is, this shows us that testing out the facts and checking things out is not just some kind of modern scientific rationalistic approach. Every single person, every generation wants to know, is this made up? Is it a story? How can we know it's true? The truth of stuff is something that is inherent in our human spirit. We don't want to believe in rubbish, don't want to believe in inventions. We want to know whether it's true. And Peter, understanding this, makes it clear, verse 16. We did not follow 
cunning, cunningly devised fables. Isn't that what people still say today? All this, it's all fable. It's just made up. It's some kind of myth. It's some kind of legend. Fables. And, and Peter says, no, we didn't follow fables when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He says, you can trust this. This is fact. You can build your life on it. It is true. It is real. So it rested on accurate reporting and accurate interpreting. But more than that, it rests also on a spiritual experience which is supernatural. Now even the early apostles, they walked with Jesus and as you read the Gospels you find that they were spiritually not very astute and Jesus had to keep saying and repeating stuff because it's one thing to know the facts but it's another thing to have the revelation of Christ in your own heart and spirit. One of the clearest passages is in Matthew 16 when Jesus had a conversation with his disciples at a place called Caesarea Philippi. And and you will recall it, uh, Jesus called them together and he says, who are people saying that I am? Tell me, what are they saying about me? And then one opinion after another opinion was shared. Some say this, some say that, some say the other. And Jesus said, well, who do you say that I am? And then in a flash of inspiration, Peter stood up and he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Matthew 16, verse 16. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Verse 17, Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. It is the Father who reveals the true identity of Jesus. This is what we call the born-again experience when we have a supernatural revelation which rests on firm foundation but still requires a direct revelation of the Holy Spirit in which you know in your heart of hearts not just that Jesus Christ is Lord but he is your Christ. He is your Lord and you give your life to Christ Because you have met him by faith through the Holy Spirit. And the amazing thing is, is that the apostle Peter is saying that this experience of authentic revelation of Christ is ongoing. It was happening in his generation and it's come right down to us today. But it's more even than just knowing who Christ is and having the experience and revelation of who Jesus is in your heart that begins to affect your life. And so we must have confidence that God is working in us. Yes, indeed, what he, he that has begun this good work is continuing this good work. And he will, he will continue it right until completion. That is our conformity to Christ. Because God's great agenda, having received Christ as our Savior and Lord, is that he should be reproduced in us. The nature of Christ in us should grow and develop and begin to shape our lives so that ultimately we look like him and we are conformed to his image. But we need assurance that we are making progress and that we are authentic disciples of Jesus Christ. How does this happen? Very largely, friends, it happens through fellowship. 
real fellowship. I'm not talking about having a few spiritual friends and some buddies and some people that you can play tennis with or whatever, whatever your thing is. I'm talking about people who sit down together with the same agenda that they may see Christ shaped in your life and the power of the Spirit released in you and, 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 and you also allow them to do the same. You open up to one another and provoke one another and when you do that, it, something happens. The Holy Spirit is released and suddenly there's a connection and you see Christ in your brother and your brother sees Christ in you. Whatever else is going on and usually there's a whole lot of other stuff going on if we're honest when you peel away your Sunday appearance and look beneath the surface yea verily the flesh stinketh yes it does and it's in all of us friends there's no pretense here today just get to know somebody enough to scrape the scrape the surface of their lives and you will find some stuff happening beneath the surface that would be shocking if it wasn't also happening in you we're all the same but that's not the end of the story because we are not in the flesh we are in the spirit Christ lives in us and when we connect with the Christ in each other that power is released and there's a transformation that takes place that's why in this church we don't believe just in attending church buildings and having services on a Sunday thank God you are here don't just come again bring six others with you we want to see these central celebrations grow. But day by day, Christian fellowship is important. And that's why we structure the church so every single one of you has an opportunity to be in spiritual relationship in small groups where you have the opportunity to open your hearts and begin to minister to one another and grow in true Christian fellowship. And the wonderful thing is, is that you always find something of Jesus in another believer. Amen. Sometimes it takes a bit of digging. And you say, well, you know, how can that person behave like that and call themselves a believer? And if you dare voice that, you'll get the same reflection. Do you know I was thinking the same thing about you? <laughs> but when we learn not just to judge by those appearances and to, and to assess one another's spirituality by the flesh stuff, we, we discover there's something beautiful in every single one of us. It's Christ in us, Christ in you. And that's what Christianity and Christian fellowship is all about. Hallelujah. Conforming to the image of Christ. So, Peter establishes, in one way or another, apostolic foundations. He starts by saying, Simon Peter a bond servant. I'm so glad he puts that description before the second one, bond servant and apostle. But he says, I'm a bond servant first. That's true apostleship. That's true leadership. When people understand, I am but a servant of God. Wonderful. The word minister, which is the only kind of description that I really accept, senior minister, uh, really means servant. So if, if a servant is a dog's body, a senior servant is a big dog's body. And that's all I see myself, as a servant of Christ. Yes, we, it's a sacred service. We are, we are handling the oracles of God, which we do in fear and trepidation. 
We are seeking, first of all, to, to be like Christ in our own lives before we start preaching to other people. Bondservant, here to, to spend our lives, to pour out our lives for one another. Let's make sure that spirit of bondservanthood is with us this year. It cuts through so much stuff. But he says, bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. When he describes himself as an apostle, he's not talking about the kind of apostles we see today. They do exist today, but these are the foundation apostles. These are the people who were laid in the foundation of the Christian church. They carried apostolic authority. They carried apostolic revelation. They were, the, the, those, they were there in that day to ensure that the teaching of Jesus was correctly imparted to the generation and built into the foundation of the Christian church. So as we've said, our faith rests on these authentic foundations. The word of God, the apostolic testimony, and the full apostolic inspiration, which means when we turn to the Bible, and I'm speaking particularly of the New Testament now, it replies to the whole of the Bible. When we turn to the Bible in the New Testament, these are not the inventions of men. These are the recordings of the word of God and we can trust the Bible and we can build our life upon the Bible and the Bible shapes our thinking, the Bible shapes our character and the Bible of course opens the door for us to see who Jesus is. So apostolic foundations but also apostolic experience. Peter goes on to say, to those who have obtained like Precious faith with us. Just reflect on that for a moment. I don't know what you th- how you think. Sometimes when you read the Bible, you think there must be great men and women there, and of course they are, remarkable people. But what was most remarkable about them was not themselves, but what God achieved through them. That's what's remarkable. And when we see the early apostles, I mean, Peter, while he was a bit of a blabbermouth when Jesus was around and he was learning slowly and took a long time, a rough diamond which had to be shaped and honed, he really, really made it. He made it through. And he was able to be used by God in the construction of this new wonderful thing called the Church of Jesus Christ, very prominent role, speaking with apostolic authority, writing scripture even as we are reading it today. Wonderful. And you can imagine that apostolic faith must be something to write home about. And maybe you look at your own life and you say, apostolic faith, well, I'm a poor reflection of these great men of God. But the truth is, you are not. Peter, out of his own mouth, says, your faith is of the same value, it's the same kind of faith that we have received. And that's not a boast, because it's something we have obtained. We didn't get it for ourselves. 
We didn't work our way up to this case that I'm going to try harder and harder. No, this was a gift of God. Faith is a gift of God. And this gift happens through the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. Because before we came to Christ, we were dead in our sins. We were blind. There was no way that we would have ever chosen God or moved one step in his direction. But the Holy Spirit drew us. The Holy Spirit convinced us. And the Holy Spirit produced this faith in us so that we could say, yes, I believe. It's supernatural. Every single one of you is a walking miracle if you believe in Christ. And if you have not yet received that, today you can receive it. It's a gift of God. Salvation is free. It's a gift of God. You open your heart and say, Christ, be my Savior. Be my Lord. I put my faith and trust in you. It's something that you must do, but you can only do as the Holy Spirit enables you to believe in a way which brings you into this relationship with God. But notice also, he says, all this happened, verse 1 again, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. How, what, what is this talking about? Now, a lot of people rightly point out the fact that our righteousness is Christ's righteousness. That's very, very true. See, what happened on the cross was Jesus took our sin that we might be gifted with his righteousness. And so we are saved not by our righteousness, but by the righteousness of Christ as a gift. And the only condition to receive that righteousness is to give up your own. Stop trying to make yourself acceptable to God. Don't think that you can have an assurance of heaven based on your good works, either as an unbeliever or as a believer. Our faith is in Christ and his righteousness. However, there's a deeper meaning here. In Isaiah 51 verse 6, we see this link between salvation and righteousness. It says, My salvation will last forever. It's never going to fail. Don't forget when God saves you, he saves you for good. That's why we do believe, even though some people still misunderstand it, once saved, always saved. Because you're not saved by your righteousness, you're saved by the righteousness of Christ. That can never spoil or perish. It never was anything to do with you, what you do. Once you put your faith in Christ, you are clothed with the salvation robes and they last forever. That doesn't mean to say that because you're saved, you can do as you like. Not at all. Because if you really are saved, you're going to say, I want to walk worthily of those, these robes of righteousness. But my salvation will last forever. My righteousness will never fail. Here he's talking about God's righteousness as his mighty, powerful overcoming of evil. God manifesting his own ideas concerning what is good and right. In other words, God setting things right. And so in salvation, it's the righteousness of God that is operating to bring us to that place where we are saved. And so that's why our faith is not inferior to ap apostolic faith. And even when that faith is tested, we still believe. 
Because we're not believing God simply for what we can get out of him. We are saved and we're going to stick with him. In good times we say hallelujah. In bad times we say a double hallelujah. That's what maturity is about. I've, over Christmas I've been reviewing R.T. Kendall's next book. And R.T. will be with us in February, preaching here the first Sunday of February. going to be with us for another six months. We're looking forward to having him. And in July, he'll be turning 80 years of age. And so the publishers asked him to write a book, Finishing Well. And his first thought was, don't ask me to say that. It ain't over till it's over. And uh, it's a very encouraging book, and I've been reviewing it. And I just want to mention one thing that's in the book. Now, it's not up to me to, uh, to steal R.T.'s thunder and tell you about the book, but I've heard him speak about this outside of the book, so I'm not really breaking any confidence here. Many years ago, when R.T. was still a young man, his, his mother was, was very unwell and finally died uh, fairly young. His mother was helped by a dear old Christian woman. You know, that there are saints and there are old saints. Old, seasoned old saints that have learned to walk with God down through the years. And so when they come to this place, they, you just know that they know God. And this is what that lady said. 90 years of age. She said, I've served the Lord for so long now that I can hardly tell the difference between a blessing and a trial. You say, well, I'm going to wait to 90 to find that out. (laughs) Is Is that all there is? But think for a moment. The knowledge of God can bring you to such a maturity, to such a faith in Christ, That when you get a blessing, you say hallelujah. When a trial comes, you say a double hallelujah. The Bible says, count it all joy. When you fall into various trials. What is the joy of a trial? Let me back up a little bit. God is a good God, yes? He gives good things to his children. Yes, he's made every provision for our life, our health, our prosperity, our blessing. Can I have an amen? All the promises are yes and amen in him. And it's so easy to be blessed. Ask and you shall receive. Hallelujah. In fact, his promises are so sure, so available, that you don't have to badger heaven to be blessed. Ask and you shall receive. But if It looks like God is not answering. You ask and you don't receive. You ask some more and you still don't receive. When that happens, begin to rejoice. This is exciting. I asked God for the blessing and it didn't come. Hallelujah. What are you so excited about? I know something. I know my God loves me so much. Jesus wants to bless me so much that if it appears he's withholding even the tiniest tiniest blessing then he is up to something he's up to something even more glorious even more glorious than if he gave us everything we asked for immediately we asked for it 
What is he up to? He says, this thing is working in us a far outweighing and surpassing weight of glory. Hallelujah. God is good all the time. Not just when we've got a pay rise. Not just when we've got a double blessing. Sometimes when we have a double dose of trial, we can say, God, have you forgotten? I said, no, I'm interested in you. I've noticed you, and I'm doing something in your life. And that's what we need, the confidence to go and experience of Christ into 2015, knowing whatever happens, God is in control, and he's a good God, and he's working it out. Amen and amen. I don't know if you know of the story of Corrie ten Boom. Uh, in the book she wrote, The Hiding Place. How many have heard of Corrie ten Boom in this book? Okay, some of you haven't. She's with Jesus now, but in 1944, Corrie ten Boom, along with other members of her family, were uh, taken by the Nazis who were occupying their home in Holland, and they were using their house as a hiding place to rescue Jews from the Nazis. And all the Jews that they rescued, all but one, who actually survived. But the Temboon family were found out, and they were taken by the Nazis and sent to concentration camp. And this is what Corrie Temboon says. Coming out of that experience... You can imagine how horrific it was if you know anything about history. And, and we see right now on the, on, in the news and the media, there's been a lot of focus on the First World War and the Second World War and all of that. And, and young people are becoming more and more interested in this because they realize there's something about that history on the 20th century that, that they know nothing about and, and they're interested in it. Now, the horrors of that, just check out for yourself some of the horrors of the Holocaust. But this is what she said emerging from that experience. You can never learn that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. Interesting. You can never know that Christ is all you need until he's all you have. What she was saying was that in those months, better part of a year, she was finally released under a clerical er error, but her sister Betsy died in the concentration camp. And she learned that when everything else is stripped away, when you, when you have nothing, when your family is taken from you, when your, your possessions are taken from you, and you have absolutely nothing, then you can discover how much Christ means to you. Now, let's not wait until everything's stripped away. <laughs> let's live by that now. And here's how to do it. We make him first. And all the other things, and there are many other wonderful things. I don't know if you're praying for blessings in 2015. I hope you are. And it's good. But you don't make an idol out of them. You don't make them the top thing. You make it the second thing, the first thing. Say, Jesus, I want to be satisfied in you. I want to know you more deeply. I want to learn to love you more passionately. I want you to be more accurately formed in my life. And I want to be a more authentic reflection of who you are. 
in my relationships with others, beginning with my brothers and sisters and then outside to the wider, wider world. And here's another testimony. Her sister Betsy spoke to Corrie shortly before she died. And she said, I've had a dream. We are both going to be released. Betsy was released by death into the presence of God. Corrie was released by a clerical er error. And Betsy said, when you go from here, go all over the world and tell them there is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. Amen. So what do we do? In good times, thank God. Don't trust in the blessings. Receive them. Rejoice. If you're happy, blessed, sing psalms. If stuff's going wrong, keep praising anyway, but pray. Amen and amen. amen. All of this comes as a result of Christ's lordship over your life. And then he comes to what for me today is the Holy Spirit's blessing over your life. Verse 2, he says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you. Pause there for a moment. Now just leave it. This is the Holy Spirit speaking. The Apostle Peter was given these words not just for his generation, but this is the heart of God. He wants to bless you and say to you today, grace be multiplied. Peace be multiplied. What a blessing. You might say, well, I was hoping for something like, multiply my bank account, Jesus. <laughs> multiply my blessings. Well, if you only understood that all the blessings flow from his grace, if you have the grace and empowering of Christ, if his peace rules in your heart, you have everything you ever need. Because by that, you can put everything else in its proper place in your life. Rejoice and rejoice and rejoice because it's multiplied. Now, multiplication is interesting here because you think, well, if I've received the grace of God, it's a done deal. Yes, but you need to grow in grace. The effects of grace multiplied in you. I'm still uh, promising, I haven't got down to it yet, to write the book on grace entitled The Amazing Effects of Grace. Not just the fact of grace, but what grace does, how grace affects us. And therefore we need more grace. If you humble yourself, you get more grace. If you come boldly to the throne of grace, you receive grace and obtain mercy. We need more and more and more of God's grace and peace manifested in our lives until it's so multiplied that everywhere we turn, we find grace. Wake up in the morning, grace. Go to bed at night, grace. Go to work, double grace. Amen and amen. And the peace of God which passes understanding. You can be in the midst of a storm and like Jesus be at rest in the middle of the boat because you have peace. Money can't buy peace. Prozac, though may be helpful for some, doesn't give you peace. 
There's no medication. There's no amount of money in the world. There's no ever any achievement, no goals that you could ever set for yourself and win and achieve that will ever give you peace. But it's a gift. Where is it found? Where is it found? Multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. In the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. So the problem with us as we read this is this word knowledge kind of doesn't grab us. You know, if you're a cab driver, you've got to have the knowledge. I think they use sat-navs, but every time I get into a cab, they seem to have the knowledge. And that's the big, big encyclopedia of all the roots in London. Knowledge, facts. We go to university to get knowledge. We study theology to get knowledge. And that kind of knowledge is important, but it's not the knowledge that is spoken here. One way of expressing this is that the Bible word for intimate relationships of husband and wife together is called knowledge. We're talking about a deep, personal, intimate participation in God. And this is an aspect of the gospel that often, sadly, Many evangelicals and charismatics don't bring out so much. We talk about the personal relationship with God, ticket to heaven, pie in the sky when we die, but there's a whole lot to do before we get there. And it's all about growing in our knowledge and experience of God. And that kind of knowledge is priceless. That 90-year-old woman had it. Imagine being so close to Christ that you can accept the good stuff and the not so good stuff equally as coming from him. I'm not saying that Jesus is the author of difficulty and trouble and trial. No, he's not. He's a good God. Amen. The devil's the troublemaker. But nothing happens to us without his permission. And if, if God allows, he does it for a purpose. Imagine being so close to Christ that you can't tell the difference. This is a blessing. This is a trial. I don't know the difference because Jesus, I find him in both. I feel him in both. That is really knowing God. And this, my friends, is what's going to impact our generation more than anything else. I'm going a little bit off-piste here for a moment. I'll try and come back quickly. A little bit off-piste. But in my thinking and reflection on, on how can we really make an impact on the world, it's not how blessed we are. It's not ever since I've become a Christian, all my problems have gone away. I've got, a, I've got a pay rise. I've got a new job. I've got accommodation. I've got new friends. All those things are wonderful, but you can have them all whatever faith you adopt. Is that not right? Because God's love is not just measured by the things that we have. Some of the wickedest, ungodliest people in the world are the richest. I'll just struggle with that for a moment and <laughs> come back into the spirit. As, as far as this world's blessing are concerned, some of the most ungodly people appear to be the most blessed, but they're not blessed. 
Not at all. Because without grace and peace, it's nothing. And anyway, what we have is unique. It's not what this world can give. This world's comforts, this world's prosperity, this world's blessings, nothing like that is what Jesus gives us. That's not the heart of it. What he gives us is a knowledge of him that tells the world God is enough. I'm satisfied with Jesus. Yes, when I'm cut, I bleed. When I'm rejected, I hurt. When things go wrong, I mourn. Yes, I'm like everybody else. But my faith is not in these things. And I know what it is to have my eyes so fixed on Jesus and the glory of God at work in me by, the, by his glory and virtue that's operating in me. I can say, hallelujah, my eyes are on Christ and he is enough. And when they, you don't even have to tell them that. They will see it. They will see it. And that's what it means. To have this, the authentic results of faith, participation in Christ, enjoyment of who he is, a deepening relationship with him, the one who is Father, Son, and Spirit, three in one, but also three as one, Father, Son, and Spirit connected together in their divine nature. Father loving the Son, Son loving the Father, the Father having fellowship and the Spirit of God, such the Spirit of love and fellowship, so real that he himself is also the third person of the Trinity and it is that that we enjoy. That's the prototype of our life in the kingdom of God where we share with one another in the fellowship of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And all this reflects the very character of God into our community because you cannot be an authentic Christian without being part of an authentic community. That's why you need to think again about what it means to be part of the body of Christ. It's not the church you happen to choose from the menu of churches on this particular Sunday or that particular Sunday. It is because God has brought you to be part of a vision of a body that is expressing community in which we share together under the anointing of God the vision of the house and participating together in building community far away from the modern individualistic self-centered egotistical approach to life and living. And in all of this, something miraculous happens. We become conformed to his own glory and virtue by the knowledge of Christ as a community of Christ we experience his power and presence every time we get together whether it's the two or three or the thousands and in that in his presence we're being transformed into his image in order that we might reflect the love of the father the son and the spirit and the relationships we have with him and each other that might reflect who God is into this world. So as we conclude today, authentic faith, apostolic assurance, tells us that our knowledge of God is personal, experiential, and communal. We share it together. And it's true that we cannot know without being known. 
Did you think about that? You can't know without being known. In other words, when Jesus said to those people who were prophesying and doing miracles and coming top of the list of all the charismatic ministries, he said, depart from me, you never knew me. No. He said, I never knew you. We love him because he first loved us. We know him because he first knows us. So as we cannot know or be known, we cannot know, but by being known, knowing and being knowing leads to a transformation. Because when we know God, we become like him. So this year, growing in our knowledge is about expanding our horizons, our spiritual horizons. The horizons of our relationship, deepening them, both with God and with each other, and then being transformed until we become like him. No wonder he starts off by saying, grace and peace be multiplied to you. I'd like you to stand for prayer. You know, this is really stirred up in my, in my spirit. I did not contrive to bring you a word out of my own knowledge and understanding that you can say, ah, hallelujah, that's a good word for the year. This came from the Holy Spirit. And I believe it's going to affect something. And I want to say it over your life right now. And I want you to open your heart and receive. This is the apostolic blessing. Not that I am you sitting in the, in the standing in the shoes of St. Peter. No way. But the same spirit, the same revelation, the same word that Peter spoke by the spirit, God is speaking to you today. And I'm going to declare this over your life. And I believe it's a blessing. And you can walk out with having received this impartation. And here it is. Are you ready? I say, in the name of Jesus, grace and peace is multiplied to you in 2015. If you, if you believe it, say a strong amen. Give Jesus a mighty praise. God bless you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.